Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 49, Rommel Wises Up. Determined to show Cairo what the SAS could do, and thus gain the support he desired, Sterling arranged more raids during the night of July 12th through the 13th, 1942. Three groups would hit the airfields around Fuca, while two more groups would go after Rommel's main airfield at El Daba. But Rommel had had enough. The enemy was ready for Sterling this time. Only two of the Fuca teams destroyed any aircraft that night. As for those heading to El Daba to take advantage of the information provided by the young, homesick German soldier, they were spotted from the air before ever reaching their target. The one team, led by Jellico, had two of its three jeeps shot up from attacking fighters which left the team to return home stacked on top of each other in their one remaining damaged jeep. As for the other Daba team, led by the Free French Martin, they were shot up from the air as well and lost an LRDG man, Robin Gurdon. This was doubly unfortunate for Sterling, as Gurdon was going to transfer to the SAS and take up the training and organization side of things. David had been looking for someone he could trust with this, since Jacques Lewis's death. His search would have to continue. The SAS and LRDG, under David's command, had been away from the 8th British Army for their longest duration. Supplies were running low, not to mention the now far too few jeeps. So, it was decided two small groups would make back for Cairo to gather supplies. Two groups in case one didn't make it. That was because, despite all their experience, intelligence had radioed David that the Germans had cut off the southern end of their part of the line. They had figured out this is where the SAS had come from. It was now impossible for the SAS to drive along the northern edge of the Guattara Depression. Instead, they would have to go through it. David would leave first with his group, and Patty would follow up, with his group, departing a few hours later. But it wouldn't be just the elements trying to kill them. The Germans had figured out a few things by now, and besides strengthening their southern end, they would have air patrols flying over the Depression. If they could not kill whoever was attacking them at night, they could at least try to make damn sure they died in the desert, waterless. Sterling's group, traveling in the lighter jeeps, was able to cut across the massive salt bog along the northern side of the Depression. In general, this area was impassable, but there were one or two paths that would, just, hold the weight of a jeep, but not the larger trucks, especially after the jeeps crossed it and cracked its surface. But as long as David's team did not deviate from those narrow paths, they would not disappear underneath the sand and salt. So they drove during the day to better see the narrow paths, risking the heat and German air patrols, and eventually made it through, their exposed skin the worst for the wear. Patty's group, however, had an altogether hellish experience. Using the heavier trucks to bring back more supplies and making sure the trucks could navigate the Depression, this group took a more southern route. Their path was plagued by quicksand, and so they had to travel during the day to see where they were going, 
That was combined with the worst part of their journey, 30 miles of untested area. This demanded that they not only hold up at night, all that was bad enough, but at the beginning of the descent into the Depression, they were spotted by three German fighters who proceeded to strafe them again and again. One jeep caught fire and the men jumped out, but not to run away. They quickly turned around and started removing the tires from the burning vehicle. Those spare tires might end up being the difference between getting out of the Depression alive and having this place become their burial ground. There was no way Patty was going to let Sterling down, or to be more precise, not make it through if David did. The competitive spirit was still very much alive. Yet perhaps the most notable moment came when the Jeeps were struggling to continue during the hottest part of the day. One of the drivers figured out that the fuel line was so hot that some of the gas was evaporated even before it got to the engine. Another appreciable moment came when the men would soak their Arab headdresses in water, it being worn to block out the sun and keep the flies out of their ears. But the moment they replaced it back on their head, it would start to smoke as the damp cloth steamed from the heat. For the next week, the 30-odd men left behind at their rendezvous point would occasionally see lines of trucks coming their way. This would either bring excitement or anxiety to them, depending on if the coming caravan was considered friend or foe. But every single time, as it came closer, the line of trucks would simply fade away into a mirage. What the men of the SAS and LRDG would learn in time was that the Germans nor the Italians wanted to venture out into the desert to look for the saboteurs. They feared and mistrusted the desert, whereas the British did not. This probably partially explains why there was never a German or an Italian SAS. Some people said that only a seafaring people, used to long distances with no reference points, could work within such an empty space, but also enjoy the isolation. But the Axis position on this would when Rommel began to truly understand what was working against him, be reversed, and then heavily armed parties were sent out. The hunters didn't like it, but orders were orders. But in time, as the opposing ground forces danced around each other and occasionally clashed, the chase would become more personal. But until that time, the Germans and the Italians settled for seeking and fighting their enemy, by plane. During the afternoon of the eighth day since they had left, Sterling's group returned. This time, it was not a mirage, and by the looks of what he had brought back, everyone could tell David was ready to hit the Axis like never before. Behind him were 20 new Jeeps, all fitted with four Vickers K-guns, which could shoot a thousand rounds per minute. And what's more, additional men who had completed the training were with him as well. On a personal note, Sterling also handed out to those left behind rum, pipes, tobacco, and more rum. Most of these supplies, work-related and for after-hours, were being carried by three new lorries. After everyone consumed enough water, food, and quite frankly, rum, to their satisfaction, 
David told them he also brought back more information. Reconnaissance had told David that the airfield called Sid Hanish, one of the Fuka fields, was now serving as Rommel's main base. It seems that the German general was alternating his main base every few weeks now. At that field, landed, refueled, and took off every plane that was heading for the German front. What's more, at that field were Rommel's JU-52 transport planes, of which he was in short supply, according to broken German wireless signals. David wanted to hit that field and take out every one of those planes, thus crippling Rommel's ability to continue to push on into Egypt. Then he told them of the new way he wanted to attack. The idea had come to him on his journey through the Depression. The reason he had brought back so many Jeeps was that he was going to line them up in two parallel lines with himself and three others in the front, like a double-lined arrow, and together they were going to drive right through that airfield and shoot up every plane with their Vickers guns. The Germans had always been slow to respond, so they should be able to move through, hit the planes, and then accelerate to make their getaway. And they would be doing this during a full moon. Their targets would be lit up by moonlight. But just to make sure, David would shoot off a green very light at the beginning of the attack. The resulting fires would help them with the rest. His men wondered at this, but their confusion proved David's main point. If they, the attackers, thought it strange, then so too were the defenders. Surprise was always David's greatest weapon. After a night of rehearsal, after all, 18 jeeps would be moving in unison and 68 powerful guns would be firing simultaneously, the attacking party moved out in late July. When the line of jeeps was about 40 miles from the city Hanish field, they stopped, checked their guns, and searched for flat or leaking tires. There were 15 of them in all, but quickly replaced. Once the sun went down, they moved out. If all went well, they would drive onto the field at 1 a.m., shoot up everything in sight, and then have three hours before the sun came up again to make good their escape, if all went according to plan. Of course, it didn't. Ten miles away from their target, the jeeps stopped one last time. Guns were rechecked. As they started up again, the tough little machines started forming up on David. But then the Germans didn't operate to the plan. While the jeeps were still about a half a mile away from the edge of the airstrip, powerful lights suddenly switched on. Everything, every plane, and many of the jeeps could be seen. But Sterling didn't stop. If they had been spotted, well, they'd just have to execute the attack plan at a slightly faster pace. But suddenly, a large, loud German transport plane came down to land. Sterling, realizing they had not been spotted, the lights had been there to assist the landing plane, surged ahead. The plane had just started bouncing into its landing when David had his guns open up on it. The rest of the men took their cue and started firing outwards. In reaction to the attack, the landing lights were quickly turned off 
But David had his bearings and the light of the full moon. He quickly added a green very light to the situation. When he came upon the smooth tarmac, David increased his speed. After all, the noise they were making had to be heard for miles. They still needed to make their getaway and didn't need to run into any units rushing to the scene from another location. Yet the planes took longer than one would expect to catch fire. Most took a full 30 seconds, which is a long time when you're firing a machine gun. But eventually, a blaze could be seen coming from below, or the aircraft simply collapsed in on itself from being ripped apart. But as the SAS had been operating against Rommel for some time, the Germans were relatively ready. As their jeeps shot up the Stukas, Heinkels, and Messerschmitts, and the valued JU-52s, artillery shells started coming down within the lines of jeeps. This was soon accompanied by a Breda gun. A fragment hit David's jeep. It quickly gave up the ghost and came to a stop on its own, which caused the other jeeps around him to stop too. So he jumped aboard another and they continued the assault and their getaway. Yet David wasn't finished. He had just spotted a separate field with additional JU-52s. And even though he had to have lost jeeps by now, or there were a few corpses now riding in some of those jeeps, and lastly, some of his men had to be out of ammo the way they were firing, this was his opportunity to really hit Rommel in a way that would matter at the front. So he ordered the jeeps to turn, shooting up a few tents and buildings as they did so, and then drove through the separate line of Junkers. Yes, he would lose men tonight, but hopefully the Germans were losing so much more. After this second shooting up of planes, the jeeps that he had left, six had been damaged and three were out of commission, headed out of the area. They stopped some distance away and moved to the next phase of the plan. The assault group would break into smaller units and make their way back to the rendezvous point separately, thus guaranteeing some of them would make it back. Yet each team was to cover as much distance as they could before the sun came up and then lay low until darkness returned. Sterling's group consisted of four jeeps and 14 men, yet one of those jeeps gave in to its mechanical injuries soon after, and one of the men died during the night. The jeep was stripped of everything valuable. The man was buried with as much dignity and honor as they could muster. No one had a Bible, and no one knew what words to say. So they just stood around his quickly dug grave for a few minutes, and then set off as the sun began to sink. Thanks to missing a specific track, and thus having to spend the night out in the desert, David's reduced team made it back to the rendezvous point with less than 50 miles worth of gas in their jeeps. But they had made it, which was better than some of the others. The free French officer, Zernheld, had led a team, but got lost and found himself upon a well-known track that David had warned everyone not to use. But before too long after sunrise, Zernheld's group was attacked by three Stukas. Zernheld was hit twice and died soon after. 
Mike Sadler brought back bad news as well, as he had stayed near the airfield, thereby outfoxing the Germans who went into the desert to find their attackers. He watched as the Germans efficiently got the airfield back up and running within 24 hours. The damaged or destroyed planes were pushed to the side and new ones were soon landing later that day, which only emphasized to David their need to hit the airfield as continuously as possible. Another group, in trying to find its way back home, had driven up beside, literally, a motorized German infantry group pursuing the saboteurs. Fortunately, the Germans, awed by the desert, assumed they were comrades and did not raise a challenge as they drove off. Yes, Rommel was taking the SAS much more seriously now and allocating impressive resources to their destruction. Yet, David saw this in the most positive light possible. There were now that many fewer German military resources threatening to take Alexandria. During the next few days, Sterling had heard from headquarters that the Germans were very angry about the raid, hence the multiple plane scene and the ground forces sent out a first. There was only one thing for it. Base camp would have to be moved. Again, but as always, they would move to the west. The desert was their element, not the Germans or the Italians. It would keep them safe. Besides, David and Patty were too excited to be afraid, even if fear would have been appropriate. Now that they had their own jeeps, they could attack during any night of the month. No more waiting for moonless nights. And now that they had a larger group, they could hit several targets in a single night, thereby confusing and hopefully deluding any German reprisal. So, more plans were made. Pressure was to be kept on the Germans until they could not replace damaged aircraft within 24 hours. Then the goal would be 48 hours, and then a week. The attacks would never stop. But then they did. David radioed headquarters to ask for supplies. But instead of going back, he gave them his location and asked 216 Squadron to fly in what was needed. But instead, a communique came back saying that David and all of the SAS were to report back to HQ. Something big was up, and they were to play a crucial role. Sterling vented his anger at Patty Maine, who took it stoically, but then appropriately aimed his anger in a message back to Alexandria. Their response was unusually placative, which made David even more nervous about the future of his semi-independent unit. But the tone from the east was firm. Three transport planes would soon land at the coordinates he had sent. Most of his men were expected to climb aboard. Only enough would stay behind to drive what vehicles they had back to Egypt. There is a well-known saying that only applies to the military if you reverse it. No news was not good news for David and the SAS.